Amen. You guys are all alone over there. <laughs> right side is the right side, right? <laughs> Amen. So good to see everyone here this morning. Whatever side you're on, this is the right place to be. <laughs> Amen. these things and I think they're innocuous but when you guys uh, get all riled up (laughs) Uh, but it is good to be in the house of God today it is good to look forward to the opportunity that he's given us today to enter into his presence to spend time with his people amen let's all stand Let's continue to pray for the Bell family, Sister Bell, uh, that God's peace, God's joy, God's comfort would be present with them. Amen. In this time of loss, we rejoice with Brother Bell, most certainly, but we still miss him. We still feel the loss of our brother. Amen. <clears throat> so let's continue to pray for their family. Uh, let's pray for our service this morning. That God's perfect will would be accomplished. Again, this is His service. We are His people. And He has a plan for us being here today. There are no coincidences. We have chosen to be here. Let's make the very most of it. It would be a shame to choose to be here and then not get anything for it. What a waste that would be. When we have access to the Lord of glory, we have access to His presence and everything that He desires to to bless us with, to give us, to impart to us this morning. Let's receive that today. Amen. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We turn to You, the only true, wise, living God, the high and exalted One, the Lord God of glory. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Our eyes, our hearts, our ears are attent to Your voice to see You high and lifted up, to see that Your train fills the temple to see that You are still on the throne. I exalt You. I laud and I magnify You, Thou Most High God. We are expecting awesome things this morning of an awesome God. I don't think that You do anything lightly. I don't think You do things small or little. But You do things huge. Hallelujah, Jesus. We're praying for wondrous, glorious, miraculous happenings here this morning according to Your perfect will and according to our desperate need this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. We acknowledge and we declare that our needs are met in You, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we turn to You to see all of our needs met. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've given us today. We pray for the Bell family, Lord, that You would continue to minister peace, continue to minister joy to them, comfort and strength. Hallelujah, Jesus. If necessary, Lord, I pray that You would use this situation for their greater good, for Your glory. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray that Your perfect will would be accomplished in our midst here today and that Your great and wondrous name, Your glorious name would be magnified, lifted up and glorified in this place here this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated this morning. We did have the committal service for Brother Bell yesterday. Uh, A lot of you were at the viewing. Uh, We appreciate that. Sister Bell really appreciates that. Uh, You guys showing up and supporting her in that. Uh, It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. I'm I'm looking forward to the celebration service this spring, uh, whenever that's going to be held. Uh, But it was just a beautiful spirit, and uh, I was I was just glad to be there. I was I was very touched. I was very blessed. And uh, what a wonderful family they have. I've never met. I don't. I don't think I've met any of them. Uh, <coughs> Ella, is that her name? One of the, I think, great granddaughters. Mike's, Mike's daughter. In any case, uh, just just a little, little testimony there. <coughs> Ella, I, I'm pretty sure that's her name. Forgive me if I'm wrong. But she's, she has a, a very uh, direct personality. Uh, she is very uh, outgoing, very gregarious. And uh, she, she came up, she was first in line, way first in line to get food. And uh, later on, <coughs> uh, she came up to me and, and started talking to me, asked me if I liked little children, ask me what my name is, uh, ask me how many kids I had, things like that. And then she wanted to tell me a knock-knock joke. Anyway, long story short, she told me a bunch of these knock-knock jokes, and they were, they were just awful. They, were, they weren't funny at all. They were, they, were, they, were, they, were not, they were just statements, you know. Knock-knock, who's there? Chicken head. Chicken head who? Chicken head, they laid an egg, and it looked really good. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it did, but it's not funny. So I, my kids used to tell jokes like that too, and it, so I kind of chuckled and, and laughed more because I remember my kids doing that. After the third or fourth or fifth one, her mom got, started to get a little irritated. Like, All right, honey, that's enough knock-knock jokes for now. And so she wanted to tell another. That's okay, one more. And it, it was the same thing, and I I laughed and. She, she, okay, now you're encouraging her. <laughs> Don't do that. <clears throat> yeah, I thought later, um, you know, it. her mom is probably irritated by that. She probably hears that all day long, especially from a, uh, a little girl who who's, has a, such a forceful personality. But I thought later on that, you know, when I come to God and, and I'm talking to him about something he's probably got to think the same thing of me sometimes that it sounds just a little bit childish a little bit ridiculous uh and you're doing this over and over and over again but he still wants me to come he still wants to hear what i have to say and uh i thought later on you know maybe i should tell her her mom that uh no I didn't. But in any case, uh, I I could have listened to her for a very long time. Uh, Maybe because it wasn't my kid. (laughs) 
but uh, but after that thought came to my mind, I was like, uh, I probably sound exactly like that. That makes no sense. That that's just a ridiculous statement. But he wants to listen to it anyway. He still wants me to come and and, and speak with him, and uh, I really appreciated that. Anyway, back to the message. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about a personal revival this morning. Uh, and, you know, we, we've talked a lot about revival in lacrosse and, and so on and so forth, what we need to do to get revival. But, you know, what we really mean by that is we want to see a massive influx of souls into the kingdom. There's nothing to revive out there. They're dead. Unless revive their dead spirits. Uh, but that's what we're really talking about. We want to see... Salvation come to Lacrosse County. Revival is in here. Revival happens to the church. And if we're going to see that massive influx of souls that we want to see, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, all of the things God's kingdom established here in Lacrosse County, we have got to be revived. And that's one thing we're trying to do with the prayer and the fasting, the emphasis on that, getting together on Tuesdays to pray. Uh, we're trying to inspire, uh, maybe in a spiritual sense, to have a personal revival, to draw closer to God, to allow God to move in our lives like He wants to. We are going to look at an example of someone receiving a personal experience like that today in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a probably a very familiar passage of Scripture to a, a lot of Christians. We'll read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And the Bible says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine, thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? For us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So in this passage of Scripture, we see kind of maybe the culmination of what has been transpiring. And in, in Isaiah's life, you know, we've probably heard a few sermons on this, uh, how that King Uzziah had to get out of the way for him to see God. And we'll be talking about that. In the United States today, we understand Maybe not specifics, but we understand the general situation that we face. 
the moral corruption, the moral bankruptcy of our society today. When we were founded, self-government meant that we would govern ourselves. It did not mean necessarily that we would elect officials, although that was part of it. There was this idea of self-government. I would govern my own passions. I would police my own decisions and make sure that I stayed within the bounds of morality. I would stay within the bounds of the law. I wouldn't have to have someone looking over my shoulder 24-7 to make sure that I did what I was supposed to do. I would discipline myself. I would govern myself to make sure those things took place. Today, the idea is everything's legal as long as you get away with it. If you don't get caught, you're good. Is it any wonder that we have such a massive police force and we have to hire more and more all the time? Our legislators have to pass more and more laws to close loopholes because there are lawyers dedicated to finding loopholes in our legal system. The idea of self-government is completely obliterated. It's gone. It's, it's completely bereft from our society today. It doesn't exist It's legal if I can get away with it. That morality can creep into the church. And in some ways it has. It really has. And I've talked about this before. Others have. You know, the, as the world goes, so does the church. But as long as we stay above the world, we're good. We're still holy. We're still righteous. And that's not true. We're not holy as long as we stay above the world. We're holy if we measure up to the standard of Scripture. That's when we're holy. Scripture is our standard. Jesus is our standard, not the world. As the world goes, we need to be more and more separated from the world. We've got, (laughs) I don't understand, I used to understand, but more and more I fail to grasp the need to stay as close to the world as possible, but still be in the church. Maybe it's because I'm just getting old. Maybe it's a youth thing. They have to do that. The latest fads, the latest fashions. And I understand wanting to be part of the fads and fashions. I was in high school at one point. Before some of you, after others of you. But I was in high school at one point. And there's a lot of pressure to fit in. There's a lot of pressure to conform. I understand that. Maybe a lot more now than, than when I was in school. I know what that pressure is like. And even after you get out of school, you have friends at work. 
or going out to the bar at Friday evening. They're going to be there Saturday. They're going to go catch a movie. They're going to go do this. They're going to go do that. Hey, why don't you join us? And they don't mean anything by it. They're just being friendly. They're Egyptians. That's what they do. But we say, no, thank you. I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't drink. I don't go to the bar. I don't, I don't dance. I don't do this. I don't do that. And then, of course, the fear is that we come off as an old fuddy-duddy. We come off maybe even worse as judgmental or uh, <laughs> just not someone I really want to get to know. And we start thinking that way. That when we express these kinds of things to people, that, well, they're going to think I'm just a dud. They're going to think that they're not going to want to get to know me or talk to me. They're, they're just going to shun me. They're going to stay away from me. I promise you that's not true. Not at the end. Maybe initially. I'll grant you that. Maybe initially. But as they see your consistent lifestyle, as they see your walk with God, I promise you, and especially if you're praying for their soul, God's going to send a situation into their lives that only He can fix. And in that day, in that hour, you know where they're going to go? Right to you. Now you're not going to be a fuddy-duddy anymore. Now you're not going to be an old fogey who doesn't know how to have fun. Now you're going to be their Savior. You're going to be their lifeline. We understand Jesus is their Savior, okay? But they don't know Jesus. They know Jesus in you. You're the one demonstrating Jesus to them. Not by compromising. Not by going to the bar with them. Not by hanging out with them. But by demonstrating a consistent Biblical Christian lifestyle to them, you are ministering to their need. They need Jesus. We know they don't need that drink. They don't need the, the fun time of dancing. I never understood that. I've always hated dancing. Did I tell you the time I went to a Metallica concert? One time, I felt so out of place. I was dressed up. I was dressed, I had, I had, uh, I wasn't in church at the time, okay, uh, but I had, I had slacks on, I had a nice button-down shirt, I don't think I had a tie on, but I was, I was going to look nice, I'd never been to one of these concerts before, <laughs> oh boy, I wish with all of my might that I had never went to that concert, as soon as I saw how everyone else was dressed. I felt very out of place. I'll just say that. And they were going crazy. They were they were going nuts. They were worshiping. <clears throat> and I stood up. I mean, I had the experience that people typically do when they go to a Pentecostal experience uh, church. That's the, that's the experience I had. I was looking around at everyone. I, I was scared. I was, they scared me to death, the way they were acting. And as soon as, as soon as everything was done, I was with my brother, and I think he was kind of the same way. We left. And I never went back. 
I never went to another one. That freaked me out. Now, <laughs> paradoxically enough, when I came into the first Pentecostal service, it felt right. It felt like I was at home. I was not used to that. Lutheran guy, I was not used to the jumping up and down, dancing, worshiping, all that stuff. But it was okay. There was definitely something different about it. Any, in any case, where am I going with that? <clears throat> anyway, there it is for whoever needed that. <laughs> uh, Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. He's going to save me here. He lived in such a time as we do. He lived in a time of moral bankruptcy. He lived in a, in a time of moral decline. In fact, he preached against it. If we look at chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see God through the prophet testifying against them. He even compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you imagine that? Did you know the most heinous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality? That wasn't it. That was a sin. It was pride. Their pride was what earned the wrath and judgment of God. God hates pride. He goes on. God promises mercy. He always does. And this is Old Testament, folks. This is Old Testament. The judgment of God. The Old Testament God. There's no mercy there. Just judgment. Condemnation. No. He always desires mercy. He promises them mercy if they will just repent and turn back to Him. God goes on in that chapter to warn that He will be avenged of His enemies. We talked about that. I never, ever want to be in the place where God declares that I am His enemy. I don't want to be the enemy of God. I used to be. I used to fight against Him with every fiber of my being. I, if you asked me, I would have said I loved God. But my actions said something else entirely. I fought against every precept He ever wrote with my lifestyle. I want God's mercy. God promises Israel a day of restoration. That in the end, all things will be restored. In chapter 5, the prophet pronounces woes. The format is kind of interesting. God lays out His arguments against Israel. He's reasoning with them. He compares them to a vineyard. 
chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It goes like this. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. He's explaining to them in a parable everything he did for them. He called them, up, called them out of slavery, of bondage, when they were a very small, pitiful people. They had no strength of their own. They had no power on their own. They were the least of all the nations, he said. But God chose to place his love there and his name with them. And he called them out and he cleaned them up and he gave them his laws and his precepts. He guided them by day by a pillar of cloud, by night by a pillar of fire. He fought for them. He gave them his covenant. His name. And he continued to do so, even when they rebelled against him. What more, he asks the nation of Israel, could I have done? What did I leave off from doing that you would leave covenant with me and go after other gods? What could I have done more? Tell me. He continues. And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Our nation at this point in time is at such a place Where once this nation was great, where once this nation upheld the laws of God, at least on paper, I wouldn't say as a nation we were ever completely and wholly righteous. We've always had faults, we've always had flaws. But there was a time where we valued that as a nation. We declared God is our God. The Lord is God in this country. Our laws were based on Christian morality. And yes, for those that are wondering, 
Christian morality is the superior morality. God's morality is the morality. If God is sovereign, if God is almighty, if He's omnipotent, He gets to declare what's right and wrong. If God created everything, if this is all His, and it is, and He did, He gets to tell us what's right and wrong. He gets to write the rules. We can say yes or no. He's given you that authority. But we don't get to declare what's right and wrong. You can live that way. You can live according to a different standard of right and wrong. But I have lived long enough to tell you this. You will pay for it in the end. Rather, it will be paid for by Jesus on the cross or by you for all of eternity. There's no third option. Not for anybody in the whole world. There are two options. And you can declare a third, a fifth, a thousandth if you'd like. You can convince and persuade yourself that that's really not true. That's your prerogative. And it wouldn't take much to do it. I've done that too. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, the human, human reason is so very powerful. It can persuade me of anything. We can be persuaded of literally anything that we want to be persuaded by. If we don't want to believe this, we're going to believe pretty much anything else. And we'll hold to it with such conviction, it's got to be true. Folks, conviction doesn't matter. There are people who subscribe to, to philosophies and worldviews and religions who are many times more convicted and fervent than you and I are. Which is sad. But it's true. Are their convictions going to save them? Is their passion and their zeal for Buddha going to save them? For Allah... No, it will not. And you can be convinced and persuaded and zealous that the Bible is false and, and evolution is true and, or whatever you want. But at the end of the day, it's still false. And God is still true. And every man is still a liar. And I pray. I pray before the day of judgment comes Everybody within the sound of my voice comes to realize that. God pronounces woes against the nation of Israel. Isaiah 5 and 13 jumped out at me. It says this, Therefore my people are gone into captivity. Why? Because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. Their multitude dried up with thirst. We're living in a day and age where ignorance is exalted. Where it's cool to be stupid. And I don't say that flippantly. I say that 
with sadness, with sorrow. The average person in school today, if, if you're competent at all, they're a geek, they're an outcast. The cool people are stupid. Uh, whatever that means. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't do anything. I don't, I, uh, I, whatever. That's the cool person today. What? How did we get to such a place where ignorance and stupidity is so highly favored and exalted? Now, I'm not saying everyone, you know, there are, there are levels of intelligence. I get that. Not everyone is, is a genius. I'm not a genius. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm striving to learn. I'm striving to grow as a person. I don't want to be stagnant. I don't know what the specific percentage is, but I would guess high 90s, somewhere in the 90 percentile range, of people that don't ever even touch a book after high school. And it's no wonder that as a society we are where we... I suppose there are all kinds of reasons, but... When the populace is ignorant, when the populace doesn't even know how to read, or if they do, they choose not to, when the populace is so bereft and devoid of of knowledge, of wisdom, of information, your government can do literally anything they want to you. They can tell you anything they want and you'll buy it. Religions can come and tell you anything they want to and you'll believe it. I could stand up here and preach five gods. I could tell you baptism isn't necessary anymore. I could tell you miracles were for the first century church. And you wouldn't know any better. All of that's false, by the way. Patently false. Baptism is necessary. Miracles are for today. There is only one God. My point is this. We need to be knowledgeable of truth. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We cannot sit back and let the preacher tell us what's right and wrong. Jesus will tell us what... I'm going to do my best to tell you what's right and wrong, but you better confirm it in the book. You'd better be confirming every, everything I say. Because I'm a man. And I can fall just like any other man. I don't plan on it. I hope you guys will keep me honest. But I'm prone to error too. This book is not. Confirm it in the book. Read it in Scripture. Know it. So that when someone gets up here and says something a little bit ignorant, you're like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. That's not quite right. That's okay. That's okay that you know something's not quite right. I want you to know that something's not quite right. My people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Ignorance is bondage, not bliss. It's bondage. 
it will lead you, ultimately, it will lead you to the pit of hell. Stay informed. I'm not necessarily talking about politics or society. Stay in the book. Don't be afraid to read a book. (laughs) Reading is okay. If you haven't read in a while, I get it. It may be a little hard. You're going to have to exercise those mental muscles, get them back into shape. But read books. Spit out the bones. Always compare it to Scripture. But it's okay to read a book. In the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. I got to... uh, When I was a new convert, I might have mentioned this before. I don't know, but I'm going to say it again. When I was a new convert, my pastor was, he was the representation of Jesus Christ to me. Okay? Uh, I don't know if that's typical. That was my experience. Everything he I hung on every word. Everything that came over the pulpit. Every, I was buying tapes of his. Listening to the preaching. Listening to the teaching. Doing what he said. I stopped doing what he told me to stop doing. Through the preaching. And it got to the point where I was following a man. Not necessarily God. I wasn't really seeking a word from God. I was seeking a word from this pastor. Now this pastor was an awesome pastor. He's dead now. He's in his reward. I'm not saying anything derogatory or bad about my pastor. I'm saying that I was was getting dangerously close to putting him on the throne. Folks, we can't do that. We've got to receive a word from God. God is on the throne. God is the one who directs our lives, our paths. Not a man. Follow a man as he follows Christ. That's okay. But as soon as he deviates from that in any way. We don't follow that man anymore. At least not in those areas he deviates. We follow Jesus Christ. When a man preaches or teaches, it might be good preaching and teaching. Nothing wrong with that. Everything right with that. But don't put a man, don't put a woman on a pedestal. Just don't do it. Respect them. Reverence them. Absolutely. Everything the Bible says to do. That's good. That's pleasing to God. But don't set them up on the throne. Don't do that. Receive a word from the Lord. Seek the Lord for direction. He will give you that direction, maybe from the pulpit. Maybe from Scripture. Maybe through prayer. Through any avenue that He chooses. I should probably throw out a whole lot of caveats here, but I'm not going to. I trust you you understand the intent of what I'm saying. When this man Uzziah died, Isaiah had a powerful revelation of who God was. 
because this man had been removed. What did Isaiah see? What revelation of God did he receive? What was God like? And <laughs> when I think of that question, what's God like? Could you describe God to me? What's his character? It's <laughs> Where do you start? How could I begin to explain someone like that? I could tell you that he's omnipotent. I could tell you he's omniscient. I could tell you he's, he's, he's eternal. He always was. He is. He always will be. I could tell you how much he loves you and me. He hung on a cross and died for us. He created us. He created everything. I could tell you all of those things. But it's... Has anyone been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. I have not. I've seen pictures. I've studied the history of it from secular historians, from creationists, how it was formed. Uh, I know a lot about the Grand Canyon, the different strata, the different rock layers, uh, things like that, but I've never been there. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've seen pictures. I've read stories. I've read the history of it. And I could explain to you what it looks like. I could explain to you the colors. I could, I could give you verbatim, well, not right now, but I could look it up, give you the dimensions, how deep it is, the river. I could, I could give you whatever stats you wanted if you give me five minutes. But I've never been there. I've never experienced it for myself. I've never seen the enormity of it. I've never stood on the... The, the edge and look down. I've never canoed or, or had a boat on the river and looked up at the, at the cliffs, listening to the echoes, smelling the smells. I've never experienced any of that. And I think the same thing applies to God. I think sometimes, I mean, we can explain everything we know about God. And we have a, the fullest revelation of who God is in this dispensation. We could explain all of those things to someone. But at the end of the day, I think people simply need to experience God for themselves. To understand the enormity of who He is. The depths of His love and His passion toward us. That's something that needs to be experienced. You can explain what color is to someone who's never seen. I don't doubt that they, under, they understand what the word color means. But if you've never seen, how would you explain the color orange and how it differs from red? How would you relate that to someone? You can't. Yeah, I could talk about different wavelengths of light. Purple has a lower wavelength than red or, or whatever it is. <clears throat> I think that's right. Anyway, I could explain all of that. They'd probably grasp that. But how that translates into vision, 
they would never understand. Not because they're dumb, but they've never seen before. And when we're talking to people about God, about Scripture, about experiences we've had in God, expect them to be a little bit dumbfounded, a little bit ignorant. They may be polite about it, but they can't fully understand. Am I making sense? They've never experienced it for themselves. They've never experienced the totality of who God is, like you and I have. They've never sat at His feet. They've never been in His throne room. Like you and I have. Isaiah learned about the holiness of God. That He is thrice holy. And that is just unpopular preaching today. Holiness. That gets back to getting as close to the world as we can. When I hear questions like, well, why can't I do this? Well, why can't I wear this? Well, why can't I go there? That's what I hear. I want to get as close to the world as I can and still make it in. The short answer is, well, you can go there. You can wear that. You can do anything you want to do. It's up to you. But my fervent counsel and recommendation is don't. Don't go there. Don't wear that. Stay as far away from the world as you possibly can. There is nothing out there. There's nothing out there. There's nothing good out there. I've been on both sides of the fence. Some of you have too. There's nothing out there. You may think there, I tell you what, the Bible says there's pleasures there's pleasure in sin for a season, and that is absolutely true. If you jumped into sin with the full revelation of what it was, no one would do it. But there's a gloss, there's a veneer on there initially. The sugar coating, the, the frosting, it's it's fun and it's exciting and everybody's doing it and they're smiling and laughing and having a good time and everyone's just together, drinking, living together, whatever it is. It's fun, it's great. Everyone's happy for a season. For a season. Then once you're in, then the veneer starts to peel away. And the ugliness starts to come in. But by then it's too late. You're stuck. Once the veneer has done its job, once you're in, your enemy has no more need for it. Your flesh has no more need for it.
And then what follows after is pain, misery, suffering, loneliness, despair. The season passes. It always passes. Nothing out there is fun forever. The veneer is always stripped away. The gloss always comes off. The shine always fades. And what's left is the truth. The truth of what sin is. It's there to kill you. It's there to destroy you. To destroy happiness. To destroy relationships. To destroy your future. Your life. That's what sin is. That's what it does. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care how you feel about it. That's what it is. And I fear I fear there will be those within the sound of my voice that will find out the hard way. I pray not. I pray not. God is a holy God. And His people are to be holy as He is holy. He commands His people to be holy. Well, I can't be holy. Yes, you can. God wouldn't command you to be holy if you couldn't be holy. He gives you the ability to be holy. He declares you to be holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Jesus at Calvary. You can't be holy. Not on your own. But through the finished work of Jesus, He can declare you. He will declare you to be holy. You will be clothed with His holiness, with His righteousness. Not ours. We so desperately need to be holy in this present day and age. Not just this far above the world. It's got to be a little bit more than that. We have got to be holy. We have got to be a righteous people. I'm not talking about dressing right. I'm talking about inward holiness. You're going to dress right if you have inward holiness. You're going to act right if you have inward holiness. You'll speak right. If you have inward holiness. Unless the Lord specifically directs, you'll never hear me, hear me preach on standards. <clears throat> I will preach holiness. I'll preach it all day long. I love holiness. I love it. I love being holy. I love dressing holy. I love that God has declared me to be holy. When I used to be altogether unholy. Where before I was separated from the presence of God. Now I am bid come into His presence. What an awesome thing that is. I wish all men everywhere understood what an awesome thing that is. I didn't always have access to God. I had access to His mercy but not to the throne room. 
God is holy. We need to be holy. Once he receives this revelation, he started preaching about woe to me. Woe is me. I can't remember who said it. Someone said this. Maybe it was one of the things you sent me, Sister Rudy, uh, or a book. I, I can't remember. He's preaching against everyone else. What was you? What was you? What was you? Then after he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he starts turning it back on himself. What was me? I am undone. <clears throat> Isaiah saw himself measured by God's standard. What a revelation that is. When we begin to understand that we will be measured by Scripture, we will be measured by the example of Jesus Christ. Not another person, not this world, not even the church as a whole, but against Jesus Christ. In these last days, we so desperately need that revelation. That God is holy. And we will be measured by that standard. Isaiah's confession is, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God's message is clear. Forgiveness. Mercy. A place to repent is always available. After Isaiah's conversion, the Lord asks a question. Whom shall I send? Isaiah responds immediately. Me. Send me. And this, I think, comes to the crux of a personal revival. Most people will pray pretty much anything else. I'll do this, I'll do that, but don't send me there. Don't call me to be this. <laughs> a lot of people pray that about missionary. Don't send me to Africa. Don't send me to, to the Ukraine. Send me to that 1,500-person church. That's where I'm feeling a call. 2,500-person church. They need, a good, they need a good preacher. They need a good song leader. I think I'm the, I think I'm the guy. I, I'm hearing Jesus right now. Yeah, you and 25 other people who have already turned in their application who also heard from Jesus. <laughs> send me wherever you need me wherever I need to go whatever I need to do send me are you willing to go where the Lord sends you where the Lord leads you and this is something that used to bother me for a very long time. I'm an introvert. 
I have a very difficult time approaching a stranger and just talking with them. Okay, I can do it. I've, I've worked up to that point. But it still feels very awkward, very clumsy. And for a very long time I had a problem with that. God, you created me this way. Fix me. Change me. Make me an extrovert. So I can go win souls. So I can go talk to people. Bring people into the church. The thing is, I always felt guilted into it. Every time I heard a sermon on soul winning, every time I heard a sermon on evangelism, I started feeling guilty. Maybe there was some good to that. But I always did it out of a sense of guilt. Never burden. I don't want anybody to feel guilted into doing the work of God. Not just soul winning, but whatever God is calling you to do. Wherever God is sending you to go. I don't want anyone to feel guilted into it. And according to the sermon I just preached, I don't, you're not going to get motivated enough to do it. Transformation is what's necessary. You can get to the place. God can bring you to the place where you want to. Where you need to. God can bring you to the place where that's who you are now. By transformation. Isn't that an awesome thing? You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to be guilted into it. Worship was another thing. <laughs> In our church, it was very boisterous. It was very uh, loud. And, you know, people running around, jumping, you know, the proverbial swinging from the chandelier type services. And I never really did that. I, I, I said before, even when I was in the world, that Metallica concert. I didn't do any of that. I was very uncomfortable doing that kind of stuff. I would go to a, a club with a, with a girlfriend. She'd want to dance. Nope. Nope. And it was, it was so bad that you can break up with me and walk out of here. If, you, if, you, if that's what you need to do, I'm not, I'm not going out there. That's just not who I am. And so when I got into the church... I really tried to do, you know, jumping up and down and dancing. Let me tell you something, folks. If I start dancing, don't call the ambulance. It's not a seizure. I'm okay. It's just me trying to dance. Okay? It's going to scare you a little bit. But but don't worry about it. Okay? It's not, it's not a medical situation. <clears throat> but you'll think, it, you'll think it is. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I felt like I was touching the throne of grace. I was, I was weeping. I was, I was lifting my hands. I was bowing. I was worshiping. And I always, again, I felt guilty. I felt like this is what I needed to do because that's what everyone else was doing. And it just... I'll be honest, I I have no problem with it. I have no problem with people doing it. I get blessed when people do that. I do. But for me to do it, it just feels artificial. It feels, I don't want to say wrong, but for me it's just, I have a much 
easier time entering into the presence of God quietly. And that's okay. That is, I struggled with this for a long time, Brother Parker. <clears throat> but I'm okay with it now. I'm okay. That's how I worship. And I, I get into the presence of God. And I touch His throne. And I hear His voice. And it's, it's beautiful. But I don't always, I very rarely jump or dance or anything like that. If you do, man, I want you to feel free to do that. Worship how you worship. Worship how you feel led to worship. Serve God how you feel led to serve God. But be obedient to Him. Follow after Him. <clears throat> we need a personal revival in our lives. We need to get to the place where we are transformed by the Spirit of God, where He transforms us and remolds us and reshapes us into the person He created us to be. When we were born into this world, we were born dead, broken, degenerate, altogether useless. But God purchases us, He refashions us, He reshapes us into something that He can use, someone that He originally created us to be. He fixes us. He repairs us, if I can say it so bluntly and so clumsily. It's so much more than that. But He brings us to our original state, the state He originally intended us to be. Amen. We're over time. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, You are an awesome God. I am so thankful for You. I am so thankful for Your so great salvation, for the relationship that You called us to. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to minister to us in the second service, that you would continue to bless your people, undergird them with strength, encourage them today in the Lord their God. Help us to seek your face. Help us to be found of you today. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.